All right, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. And let's go before the Lord one more time this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, for your salvation, for your loving kindness, for your patience with us, Father. Lord, we pray that you'd grant us much grace, that by your Holy Spirit we would grow to be more like Jesus, grow to be less like our former selves, and that we would glorify you in all that we say and all that we do. I pray that you would teach us unity as a youth group and as a church, Father. I pray that you would grant us grace that by your Holy Spirit, the one Spirit that is mentioned within our text this evening, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be unified and that we would be motivated by the gospel to love you and serve you all the more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, and we'll be going down till about verse 10 or so. So Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. As we can look into these verses, one thing that is abundantly clear is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a total life transformation. One thing that you'll begin to recognize, the more that you begin to study scripture, the more that you begin to understand and know the gospel, is that it is not something that is content with simply changing portions of your life. Kind of my usual illustration to uh, illustrate this is if you were to examine your life as sort of like being a house. There's different rooms that are in your house, just like there's different areas of your life. There's different rooms within a house, and within each of these rooms, there is normally something that would participate. You have a kitchen, there would you know, be making a food and eating a food and different things like that, or uh, unless you have a dining room that's sort of separate from a kitchen, in which case that's where you would typically have the uh, a meal that you would eat, or there's a living room, and that's where you would watch TV or just kind of unwind or relax. Some houses would have an office that's in it, and that's where you would do a lot of different work or study or different things like that. And then, of course, there's uh, your bedroom, which is where you would hang out. Maybe there's also video games that you'd play in there or something of a of that effect. Or one of the most great, the greatest concept that you could have within a house is having a bedroom, which is an area where there's sleep that would take place. That's a beautiful thing, beautiful thing to, to be able to do. Uh, kind of eludes my understanding a little bit, but that's okay. Most people can definitely sleep pretty well. But you get the idea. There's different areas of a house. There's different rooms. And there's different things that go on in the different rooms. And that's kind of how it is within our lives. We have areas where there is a school that we would attend. Or maybe there's we're homeschooled. Whatever it is, we're pursuing some kind of education. Or there's a workplace at some point. Or there's friendships that we have. There's different kinds of relationships that would exist. We just went through a series on dating. Maybe that's something that would exist within our lives at some point in time. 
whatever it is. There's different areas of our lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not content to be a living room only change or a study room only change where your, your study normally consisted of, you know, just as an example, maybe you were an atheist previously and you were studying evolution in the office. And now the studies have kind of changed to studying creationism or studying the Word of God. There's, then, then that's just that area of, the, of your house, though. And when it comes to your room, you don't want to study in your room there or you don't want to study in the kitchen because after all, that's, that's just for food. That's, that's not an area of your life that needs the study of the gospel. That's kind of how we approach oftentimes, whether knowingly or unknowingly, we approach other areas of our lives that it's like, that's one area specifically that I'm not interested in transformation. I'm not interested in transforming that specific area of my life because I do different things in that area and I do different things that are enjoyable and they're, they're not a part of the gospel, but they're still enjoyable. And, and over here in kind of church life, the church room, there's, there's where the gospel can stay. There's where I can be a Christian. But these other areas of my life are not necessarily areas that I want to be bothered with any kind of a transformation. But the truth is, within Scripture we see especially, that the gospel is not content to transform one specific area of your life. The gospel is intended to transform all of your life, every single area of your life, to transform you into somebody who is a believer in Jesus Christ, to somebody who lives holy, to somebody who lives distinct, to somebody who lives distinctively unique than the world around them. This is what the gospel does. And one thing that we can begin to focus on within Ephesians 4 is the very fact that the gospel is going to transform us into a community of unity, a community of unified individuals. So you get the impression that that doesn't just simply mean that with the gospel that I come into a youth group and that's the only place where I'm a part of a youth group or that I'm a part of a church. But we would begin to recognize that with the entire life transformationness that the gospel imposes upon us, that it's every single area of our life, I'm still a member of the church. The Bible talks about the church in two different ways. The first way is sort of church universal, where there is every single believer from Adam to the last person born that has ever lived and will ever exist and has become a Christian, has become a follower of Jesus Christ. Every single person makes up one church. But then we also recognize that there is a local body of Christ, which is a visible representation of this church. And so as I live and as I exist there, though I'm not in a building, I'm still in the church if I'm a Christian. Every area of my life will still be something that is being done within the church itself, whether or not I'm actually in a building. In fact, this was even something that Jesus had prophesied about, that it's neither on this place or that place or wherever it is that you could possibly think of that would be a place of worship, that a true worshiper worships God, but that a worshiper worships God in spirit. It's a spiritual concept. It's a metaphysical concept. It's something beyond the bounds of physics in and of itself. And that's the way that a person would worship God. So that's the totality of their lives. And so I am unified 
If I am a Christian, I am going to be, if not already, unified with a group of individuals who are also known as Christians. I belong to them. I belong to a group. And again, it's not in one specific area of my life I can exhibit some unity, but it's in every single area of my life I would exhibit unity. I think that's a very interesting concept if we're going to talk about unity is to begin to talk about the fact that if I'm, if I'm going through college or something after youth group or if I'm in a particular school setting or I'm in a particular workplace, do my views and do my values change? Could I, di- could I disagree with somebody within the youth group if there's a different area of my life that I would be interacting with them in? Is there a disagreement that would ultimately exist? Is there philosophical disagreements that would exist? Is there theological disagreements that would exist? Do I believe differently about the gospel in different circumstances and in different scenarios? Do I believe differently about Jesus Christ in different scenarios? Do I live in such a way as I deny the existence of God by the manner in which I'm living in other areas of my life? These are important concepts because the gospel saves us unto this kind of unity where it is a totality of unity for every single area of my life that I am unified with other Christians specifically on. Now granted, there are fake Christians that run around. There's people that throw around the name of Christ that are not Christians. That happens constantly. That happens all the time. So we're not telling you be unified with anybody who has the name Christian. Be unified with anybody who is a genuine Christian. And in a lot of ways, that behooves us. That means that we need to begin to learn things about Christianity, what it genuinely means to be a Christian, so that way I could know properly who to be unified with. The gospel transforms us, unifies us into a unique, active, and theological community, as well as a gifted community. This is how Paul is going to transition the chapter. He's going to talk about the fact that here's how you're supposed to live. You're supposed to live in a manner worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. You're supposed to look like a Christian if you are a Christian, is essentially what he's saying. You're supposed to look like a Christian in your personal life, your humility relating to your personal salvation, your personal uh, practicing of the righteousness of God. You're supposed to be humble. You're supposed to be gentle. You're supposed to be loving towards one another. There's supposed to be something about you that is supposed to happen if you're genuinely saved. And then he talks about also that this results in a unity that would exist amongst a community of believers. There's a unity that would ultimately exist. The gospel transforms you into that. And then he's going to start to transition from this idea, here's what your personal holiness needs to look like. Here's what your community relationship needs to look like. And then you're going to be given gospel motivation so that you can actually become active and diligent to serve because you've been gifted to be able to do so. And that when you come in and you sit under preaching, when you come into a church setting, when you come into the various different activities of teaching that would go on within a church, you're doing that for a specific purpose of missions. And I don't say, I don't mean that you got to go overseas or anything like that necessarily, but every single person within the church has an obligation to be active in serving. You're supposed to be doing something as a Christian for the church 
as well as maybe even for the community, if not just simply evangelizing. And so that's how, that's how this chapter is ultimately going to go, how the gospel transforms us and changes us into individuals that are humble, individuals that are unified, individuals that are gospel motivated, but individuals that are using their gifts that God has given to them. Each person is going to matter. And I think it's interesting because if you focus a lot upon the idea of needing to be unified, needing to be unified with other believers, that can a lot of times cause us to miss the importance of the individualism of each and every one of you. You fit within the body of Christ. You're a piece of the puzzle. Without you functioning properly within the body of Christ, the body of Christ is not functioning properly. Even if it's down to the minutia of a pinky, you're, you're just a little tiny finger on a hand. You still have a purpose. You still have something that you're supposed to do. You still have a role that you're supposed to play. And even though we could maybe cut off a pinky, there's still a difference on how the, the hand could be functioning if it was a full hand. That's how it's like. That's what it's, that's what it's like to be a member of the community. That's what it's like to be unified is that you're supposed to be positively contributing to the community. It's kind of haunting in some ways that the Bible would picture, would paint the picture of the body of Christ, the church being called the body of Christ. And yet there is potentially an overwhelming number of Christians that are inactive and it makes Jesus, if the church is the body of Christ, the representation of Christ on earth, it would make Jesus look like a paralytic by the level of inactivity that certain Christians would have. And so that brings up kind of an elephant in the room that your actions, your activities, by professing the name of Jesus, the way that you live your lives, has an impact on the perception of Christ that others would have. You can, by the way in which you live your life, either negatively impact people's view of Jesus or positively impact people's view of Jesus. Now, of course, people are going to hate Jesus. I get that. I, I recognize from the Bible that people are going to look at Christ, and this is one of the reasons why they killed him, one of the reasons why they murdered him, because the message of Jesus is offensive. It's bothersome to come into a group of people and either tell them that they're totally wretched, totally vile, or tell them that they're legalists and their self-righteousness is filthy rags in the presence of God. Both of those spectrums, the wicked and these self-righteous individuals, if you're going to confront them on who they are, and it's a bad thing that they are the, the way that they are, you're going to confront them on these things, you're going to naturally tick somebody off. I get that. I understand that. But especially within that realm, if people are already hatred of Christ, experiencing a hatred of Christ, why would we add to the degree in which they blaspheme and hate Christ by demonstrating Christ to be something other than who He actually is? Which is what we do if we live with a profession of Christ and we live with consistent participation with sin consistent participation with laziness and lack of servitude. 
One thing that we should never, ever do, we should strive to do, is to avoid giving the impression that there is no difference and there is nothing that changes whatsoever when somebody becomes a Christian. What reason do we give to call people to repentance? And what reason do we give ourselves to push on towards greater levels of enjoyment of Christ, greater levels of satisfaction with God within this life? What reason do we give anybody if our lives are exactly the same as the lives of those around us? We give nobody any reason. There is a distinct difference And if you'll notice all the different ways in which the first few verses are describing the unity, it's also describing a uniqueness that exists within the unity. There's only one body. There's not multiple bodies. There's not multiple concepts that float around within Christianity that can clash or contradict each other or different things like that. There's a unity within the body. There's one kind of person technically speaking, within this body, it is a Christian, it is a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ. There's not other kinds of people other than those people that would exist within the body of Christ. And every single one of these categories are essentially three categories corresponding to each person of the Trinity. One body, one spirit, and there's a hope that's associated with that. So there's only one Holy Spirit, there's only one body, and then in that context would exist the hope of your calling, the hope of eternal life, the hope of inheriting eternal life. Now it's interesting as well, because if you hear that, and you've recognized maybe some Old Testament history, you've recognized some New Testament concepts that have come about, that same Holy Spirit, that was active in falling upon the people of God in the Old Testament, pushing them and moving them into great things. That same Spirit that descended upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost and caused them to live extraordinary lives. That same Spirit that Jesus Christ had said that He was going to send you to be your encouragement, to be your help, to even be somebody that will bring to remembrance the things that Christ has taught. That same Holy Spirit that separated unto Himself Paul and Barnabas for ministry. That same Holy Spirit is yours. Because there's only one Spirit. And that one Spirit is given to the entirety of God's people. That's yours. He exists and He lives within you. He exists and He lives with the purpose of conforming you to the image of God's will so that that way you could live in maybe different extraordinary things than the apostles did, but still be living in an extraordinary version of life. It's the same Holy Spirit that Ephesians 1 talked about that was given as the guarantee of your salvation. And even if your estimate of extraordinary doesn't match up to the actuality of what exists within your life, that you might think extraordinary would be something else, and extraordinary might be to suffer for the sake of Christ, but regardless of whatever your estimate of extraordinary would be, you still recognize contextually with the book of Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that Christ is going to finish bringing you home. Finish the salvation that He has started within your life. 
He who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion in the day of the Lord. So yes, these are concepts that call us to a to a different kind of life than the world around us, to a holy kind of life, to a unique kind of life that bails on sin, that pursues righteousness and different things like that. But it is also the concepts that we've been reading throughout the entirety of Scripture, all these amazing things that have happened. And those same concepts, though they may be in a different form or they may not... You know, it may not be that we're speaking in tongues. It may not be that we're doing some of these gifts or whatever it is or healing people or whatever it is, but there's still that same spirit that caused those things that is with you this very evening and for the rest of your lives. Such an awesome and wonderful concept. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, there's one thing that's very difficult about those phrases in the now postmodern society in which we live, in the now postmodern society of Christianity in which we exist, just the time frame that we're living in right now. And that is the very fact that there's a lot of people that are existing within churches who don't operate as if there's one Lord. They operate as if there's maybe many Lords, or that maybe they're also the Lord of their life. It's a very common thing. Theologically, it can be called mysticism, but it's a very common thing that people would live and exist in such a way as if they're hearing directly from the Word of God, or sorry, directly from God Himself, and that because of that, they're going to live or operate in different ways. And yet we realize that the greatest way, the most consistent way to actually genuinely hear from the Word of God is to read the Scriptures. It's too subjective and it's too open to error to exist in this own privatized personal version of Christianity whereby sometimes you could be hearing the Word of God, but the majority of the time you're probably hearing the voice in your head and saying, this is what God's wanting me to do and and this is what breeds individuals who come up with conclusions that are unbiblical conclusions. I can't tell you how many times it is that in counseling circumstances and situations for marital counseling that somebody's going to say, the Holy Spirit doesn't want me to be unhappy, therefore he's okay with me divorcing my spouse when there's no biblical reason for divorce. There's one Lord There's one spirit and he has spoken within the 66 books that you're holding within your possession right now. And if there's anything that I have that is contrary and different to that which is being revealed in scripture, it's not God speaking. God doesn't speak in one circumstance and then completely flip his mind and say, you know, that was true then, but we'll we'll go ahead and do something exactly contradictory now. All because... For you, your happiness is more important than the biblical estimation of holiness and happiness. There's one master. This means that you don't have commandments from somebody else. You don't have a personal privatized version of Christianity or a version of obedience. You have one faith. There's not multiple faiths that exist within this congregation within the the gathering together of believers within the universal body of Christ. There's not multiple faiths. There's one faith. There's one way. Jesus even said it himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. There's only one way of salvation. 
So there's an exclusivity of it. There's a unity of it. All of that is existing within our context here. There's one God. There's one Father. This is following the same line of reasoning that there's not multiple sources that I should be listening to on how to live. And if you'll notice what's even being expressed of God the Father who is over all, through all, and in all, He is the complete and total exhaustive estimation of reality. What God says about reality is a full-reaching, far-encompassing, and total estimation of what He Himself has created. Now, there may be things within Scripture that, that, of course, are not revealed, and those things may be areas of freedom that can exist or things that are are not necessarily as important that we would recognize, but everything that's been revealed within Scripture is this full estimation of everything that we need to know for life and godliness. We don't need to turn to different sources. We don't need to try to find other means to begin to figure out how it is that we're supposed to live our lives. As we examine what God has said about our lives, we will have the fullness of why we should be living, how we should be living, and how it is that we can glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's all completely contained. There's not other ways in which we are absolutely, uh, that are absolutely necessary in order to begin to live our lives to our fullest potential. There's not something that we're missing, in other words. If we read the Bible, if we read the Scripture, if we listen to what God is saying within the Bible, we're not going to be lacking on something. We're not missing something. It's not like you would read Genesis to Revelation, come out from that, and then begin to think to yourself, I'm still, I'm still not as enjoying life as I could be. Or I'm still not as holy as I could be. Or I still haven't gained enough information as far as eternal life is going to go. There's only this exclusivity that's all that is necessary. Peter even talks about it, that he has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. It also says here within our text that he has given us all a measure of grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's given us grace that is according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he gives us these these three verses that seem to be rather interesting in what they're saying. But ultimately, if you see within the context, what's being expressed is exactly the gospel. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In other words, his ascension was what he did when he accomplished salvation and when he returned to the Father. And then Paul even gives us his interpretation. He says, what does it mean that he ascended, except that it also means that he descended into the lower parts of earth? Some people say that that phrase right there, and it's particularly within Lutheran camps or other individuals, that that means that Christ went into hell specifically to endure hell for us. That's not what's being uh, referenced there. The idea of him going into the lower parts of the earth, that's an expression for him going into a grave. He descended in the lower parts of the earth. That means he died. And then he ascended. That means that he resurrected from the dead. He became alive again. And then he went back into the heavens. And now he is the purpose of all things. He's the point. Everything that we have within life is intended to point us to Jesus Christ. So essentially what Paul is doing here is he is giving us gospel 
He's giving us the good news of what Jesus did on our behalf, and he's placing it here within this context so that he can give us motivation. And the motivation is essentially going to go like this. We've seen from the book of Ephesians theological concepts pertaining to our salvation that are important for us to know. We've seen that God has unconditionally elected us unto salvation. He has chosen to save us. He has chosen to give us Jesus Christ. He has chosen us uh, to, to seal us with the Holy Spirit so that once we become saved, we would not become lost ever again. We're, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He then tells us in Ephesians 2 the concept that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were living in as ruinous and as miserable conditions as being a corpse in the ground, decomposing. That's what it was like spiritually for us. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We were, as the scriptures would teach, we were enslaved to sin. And the language here even talks about the fact that he set us free. He set captives free. And so he's telling us these things as a means of being able to motivate us to something. And so if you recognize that God is saying, Paul is teaching us here, God is saying that you had a lifestyle that was terrible, that was in captivity, that was in slavery, that was in spiritual deadness. This was the horrors of what it was like before becoming a Christian. And since that was you, Jesus came to set you free from that and to set you free unto something. And if you recognize from the scriptural teaching, from the revelation that God has given you, that being in sin is in and of itself terrible, it also results in judgment and in eternal condemnation. So you've been saved from the immediate effects of the ruin and the misery of sin. You've also been saved from the total effects of the ruin and misery of sin, which is to bear the wrath of God for an eternity future. You've been saved from those things. To be genuinely saved from those things, to genuinely experience salvation, is to then enter into a position whereby which the next things that God says are so utterly valuable to you because of what God has done for you. In other words, God has saved you from your sins and now has said to serve Him. And service of God is something that is laborious. Service of God is something that is meaningless. Service of God is something that can cause us to be burnt out so quickly and so easily if we're not doing it from gospel motivation. Because otherwise, we're existing in a camp over here. And in this camp over here, we're doing something because we have to. That's what service is over here if it's not gospel motivated. We're doing this because we have to. We're doing this because we feel like we need to earn something from God. We're doing this because some guy in a chief's t-shirt on Friday nights is telling you, serve God. And, and the chief's t-shirt is motivation because you, do, you don't want to be a chief's fan. It's, it's sad. It's going back to Ephesians 2. It's what, it's what it's like being a chief's fan. If they win a Super Bowl, then that's what it's like to go beyond Ephesians 2. But that's what it's like. You're over here without 
gospel motivation, without understanding what it is that God has done for you, what he is doing for you, and what he will always do for you, over here it's an obligation. And that's what it's like to read a commandment. If there's no gospel within a commandment, and we know that there is because Jesus said in John 5, if you would have believed Moses, the writer of the commandments, and there's more than just 10, there's about 614 in the first five books of the Old Testament alone. The author of those was Moses, and Jesus said that Moses was writing about Jesus. And so if you don't look at a command with gospel motivation, then those are obligations. Those are things that that are laborious to do, There's no joy to do those things, and they're they're going to burn you out. They're going to be very difficult to do. It's not going to be any kind of fun whatsoever to be in this camp over here where it's just obligation. But over in this camp, if there is gospel motivation, if I'm doing this because God has strengthened me and enabled me to be able to do so, then it's no longer something that I have to do. It's something that I get to do. It's now privilege. It's now opportunities of understanding how it is that I can please God. That's the differences between what I would be doing out of obligation and what I would be doing out of motivation. This would be gospel obligation, and that's an oxymoron. This would be gospel motivation. This is what God has done for me. So Ephesians has helped me to recognize that God is sovereign in his election of me. I didn't do anything to deserve that. If you have ever been in an undeserving, privileged situation, what is your normal response? What is your normal reaction to that? Now, some people, it could be that case because of sin that lives within them, that they would be totally indifferent, totally spoiled, and totally like ridiculous in their reactions to being in moments of privilege that they didn't deserve or they didn't earn. But the general consensus of somebody who recognizes the impact of being in a position of privilege would understand gratitude, number one. They would also understand, I'll I'll do whatever you want now. And depending upon the degree of privilege would be the degree of desire to do whatever would be pleasing to the person who's put you in that privilege. And the gospel is the highest degree of privilege. That's why it's so important to recognize that I didn't do anything to cause God to say, okay, I'll save you now. It was his choice. And he chose out of his love and out of his grace to save you. And to save you from something that is terrible. To save you from something that is miserable. And to ultimately save you from that which is going to be the most horrible thing that you could ever experience. And that's the wrath of God. You know that, then to say something like cleaning the church, as as lame as cleaning could always be, it, it's a little interesting that my wife is the one who's laughing at me saying that. <laughs> I clean every once in a while. Sometimes I'll clean up after myself. Sometimes. <laughs> But as lame as something like cleaning is in our estimation of the things that we could do, I mean, if you were to compare the Apostle Paul's activity of service to cleaning a church, it's like, no, this is, even though I would have to suffer a ton, at least I'd be writing half the New Testament and not having to, like, clean the nasty stuff out of the toilet. I mean, ugh, that's disgusting. I would rather be stoned like Paul was. 
than to have to like like thumb gum off of the floor, right? Or like underneath a table or underneath a chair. That's nasty. That was in somebody's mouth. And that's disgusting. People's mouths are gross. All of them. Except for my wife's. That's awkward. Super awkward. Let's edit this portion out. Just slice that right out. <coughs> Notes. That's why you have them. Okay. Bring it back. But if I am so gospel motivated, then something like cleaning a church would not be something that I would have to do, but it's something that I would be able to do. I would get to do that. And I would desire to do that because a lot of times people can come into a church and if a church building is all disgusting and nasty, it could hinder somebody's ability to receive the gospel. They're so focused upon the different things that are wrong within a church in terms of things that are gross or things that are uh, you know, ultimately unclean, and it could hinder their ability to be influenced and to embrace the gospel message. And so I would want to remove the distractions that exist within a church so that people can be as freed up as possible to receive the gospel message. Things like that are, are ways in which our minds can be revolutionized. Even just in the simple idea of wanting to do evangelism, wanting to preach the gospel, and every single one of you is a preacher of the gospel, even though you don't have the cute Madonna mic on the right side of your face. You can still preach the gospel and be a preacher of the gospel in any circumstance and situation, especially when you recognize what it is that you're telling somebody. You're not telling somebody, you're not selling something. You're not trying to get somebody to buy the, the product that you're selling because it's better than the one that Muslims are selling, which of course, yeah. <laughs> but you're giving away something for free that is a life-changing reality even unto eternal life when you know what it is that you've been saved from and you know everybody else is in that exact same position, then you have the ultimate motivation to be able to say with love and empathy and concern for somebody's soul, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Without gospel motivation, these things are going to be utter difficulties. So a few things that we can see from our context. Number one, theology matters. Knowing things about God Matters. I mean, imagine what Ephesians 4 would be like if you didn't understand, if you didn't believe in the Trinity. That would make no sense. It would make no sense that there would be one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, if those weren't three different persons there that were also in and of themselves unified. And Paul's even giving us the Trinity here as an example of unity. There are three different persons here, but they are distinct in their personhood, but they are unified in their being. They're unified in their essence. The same kind of unity is something that would need to exist amongst God's people there. Theology is something that matters, but giving us the foundation of doctrine, giving us the foundation of theology is something that is essential to begin to understand how it is that I can be unified with somebody else. They don't believe in the same theology that I have. 
And so either I can begin to confront them and say the right theology or whatever it is, but that's how you can begin to grow in more unity with one another. But if nobody understands what it is that they're supposed to believe as a Christian, how can people ultimately gain a level of unity? It's a little bit more than just loving one another. It's understanding things about God that's important there. Secondly, is you will never move or be moved to service without a gospel motivation, without understanding and recognizing the things that God has saved you from. Christ has purchased you. Christ has brought you out of the depths of sin. This is one thing that I was listening to an interview uh, with Al Robertson. He's one of the Duck Dynasty brothers. (laughs) Uh, And he's from a, a different kind of denomination. They sort of hold to um, baptismal regeneration. In other words, that baptism is kind of a way of being saved, but not something that you would do because you've been saved. So there are some differences, but there's a lot of conservatism that exists within them. And so the conversation, it was an interview on Huffington Post, which of course, if there's any place that you're going to get really solid truth, it's from Huffington Post. Just kidding. That's a joke. Don't Google it or go there. I don't know if you picked up on the sarcasm or not. But in that interview, the lady asked something that everybody keeps asking. If God is love, then why is it that he would not be accepting of somebody because of their sexual orientation or whatever it is? God is love. God is love. And I appreciated the answer that Al gave, but at the same time, to truly understand God is love And his greatest display of love was to save people from those kinds of things. So to have God being love and to understand what that means, to understand what the gospel means, is that God loved you so much that he gave his only unique son. The one son that he is utterly and perfectly and even infinitely pleased with. From eternity past to eternity future, he gave that son to die upon the cross in your stead so that you would not be judged and condemned from things like homosexuality, things like drunkenness, things like sexual sins of any kind. That's, that's the God who is love. When he gave that much love to redeem you unto something that much better than the sins that you've been living in. When you grasp that, when you grasp that gospel motivation, that's when you can begin to contribute positively and effectively to the overall betterment and well-being of your life and the body of Christ and the advancement of the gospel. And keep in mind that you can always negatively contribute to the advancement of the gospel by the way that you would participate in sin or compromise on degrees of sin. God gave Christ and Christ successfully accomplished our salvation so that we could experience a greater form of quality of life. And that life is one that is active, that is ongoing, and that serves God with joy and happiness because of what it is that God saved you from. Let's pray. Our great and heavenly Father, we thank you so much for revealing these things to us. 
We thank you so much that you are love and that you are your kind of love, the highest form of love, and that you loved us so much that you brought us out of sin and brought us into service for your namesake, for your glory. So I pray that you would grant us reminders and remembrances of the gospel so that we can be motivated to serve you as something that we can do, that we get to do, that it's a privilege to be able to serve the omnipotent, omniscient, almighty God. Help us to understand and to know more and more how bad sin actually is and that we can glorify you. Draw us into closer communion and fellowship with you through the message of your gospel so that you can receive even more glory from us. We pray these things for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.